Volume 2, Book 8, Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Life of Apollonius of Tyana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Apollonius of Tyana by Flavius Philostratus, translated by F. C. Conybear. Volume 2, Book 8, Chapter 7, Part 1. 1 my prince we are at issue with one another concerning matters of grave moment for you run such a risk as never autocrat did before you that namely of being thought to be animated by a wholly unjust hatred of philosophy while i am exposed to a worse peril than was ever socrates at athens for though his accusers taxed him in their indictment with introducing new beliefs about demons they never went so far as to call him or think him a demon. Since, however, so grave a peril besets us both, I will not hesitate to tender you the advice of whose excellence I am myself convinced. For since the accuser has plunged us into this struggle, the many have been led to form a false opinion of both myself and of you. They have come to imagine that, in this audience, you will listen only to the counsels of anger, with the result that you will even put me to death, whatever death means, and that I, in turn, shall try to evade this tribunal in some of the many ways there are, and they were, my prince, myriad, of escaping from it. Though these rumors have reached my ears, I have not contracted any prejudice against you, nor have I done you the injury of supposing you will hear my cause otherwise than in accordance with the strictest principles of equity for in conformity with the laws i submit myself to their pronouncement and i would advise you also to do the same for justice demands that you should neither prejudice the case nor take your seat on the bench with your mind made up to the belief that i have done you any wrong if you were told that the armenian the babylonian and other foreign potentates were about to inflict some disaster on you which must lead to the loss of your empire you would I am sure, laugh outright, although they have hosts of cavalry, all kinds of archers, a gold-bearing soil, and, as I know full well, a teeming population. And yet you distrust a philosopher, naked of means of offense, and are ready to believe he is a menace to the autocrat of the Romans. All this on the mere word of an Egyptian sycophant. Never did you hear such tales from Athene whom you allege to be your guardian spirit, unless indeed, great heavens, their faculty of flattering and falsely accusing others has so increased the influence of these miscreants, that you would pretend that whereas in insignificant matters, such as sore eyes, and avoidance of fevers and inflammation of the bowels, the gods are your apt advisers, manipulating and healing you after the manner of physicians of any one of these maladies you may be suffering from, they, nevertheless, in matters which imperil your throne and your life, give you no counsel either as to the persons you should guard against or as to the weapons you should employ against them, but, instead of coming to your aid, leave you to the tender mercies of false accusers, whom you regard as the Aegis of Athene or the Hand of Zeus, just because they assert that they understand your welfare better even than do the gods and that they ever watch over you in the hours of their waking and sleeping, 
if indeed these wretches can sleep after pouring out such wicked lies and compiling ever and anon whole iliads such as this one that they should keep horses and roll theatrically into the forum in chariots drawn by snowy teams that they should gorge themselves off dishes of silver and gold parade favorites that cost them two or three myriad sesterces that they should go on committing adultery as long as they are not found out and then and not before marry the victims of their lusts when they are caught red-handed that their splendid success should be hailed with applause as often as some philosopher or consul absolutely innocent falls into their toils and is put to death by yourself all this i am willing to concede to the license of these accursed wretches and to their brazen indifference to the public eye and to the law but that they should give themselves the airs of superhuman beings and presume to know better than the gods i cannot approve or allow and the mere rumour of it fills me with horror and if you will allow such things to be they will perhaps accuse even yourself of offending against established religion for we may expect the sycophants to concoct such accusations against yourself so soon as they have exhausted the list of their other victims i know that my tone is rather that of a censor than that of a defendant if so you must pardon me for thus speaking up in behalf of the laws with the recognition of whose authority by yourself stands and falls that of your own two who then will be my advocate while i am defending myself for if i called upon zeus to help me under whom i am conscious of having passed my life they will accuse me of being a wizard and of bringing heaven down to earth let us then appeal in this matter to one whom i deny to be dead although the many assert it i mean your own father who held me in the same esteem in which you hold him for he made you and was in turn made by me he my prince shall assist me in my defence because he knows my character much better than yourself for he came to egypt before he was raised to the throne as much to converse with me about the empire as to sacrifice to the gods of egypt and when he found me with my long hair and dressed as i am at this moment he did not ask me a single question about my costume because he considered that everything about me was well but he admitted that he had come thither on my account and after commending me and saying to me things which he would have said to no one else and having heard from me what he would have heard from no one else he departed i most confirmed him in his aspirations for the throne when others already sought to dissuade him in no unfriendly spirit i admit though you anyhow cannot agree with them for those who tried to persuade him not to assume the reins of empire were assuredly on their way to deprive you also of the succession to him which you now hold but by my advice he did not hold himself unworthy he said of the kingdom which lay within his grasp and of making you the heirs thereto and he fully acknowledged the entire wisdom of my advice and he was raised himself to the pinnacle of greatness as in turn he raised yourselves now if he had looked upon me as a wizard he would never have taken me into his confidence for he did not come and say such things as this to me compel the fates or compel zeus to appoint me tyrant 
or to work miracles and portents in my behalf, and show me the sun rising in the west and setting at the point where it rises. For I should not have thought him a fit person for empire if he had either considered me as an adept in such art, or resorted to such tricks in pursuit of a crown which it behooved him to win by his virtues alone. More than this, my conversation with him was held publicly in a temple, and wizards do not affect temples of the gods as their places of reunion, for such places are inimical to those who deal in magic, and they cloak their art under the cover of night and of every sort of darkness, so as to preclude their dupes from the use of their eyes and ears. It is true that he also had a private conversation with me, but there were present at it, beside myself, Euphrates, and Dion, one of them my bitter enemy, but the other my firmest friend, for may there never come a time when I shall not reckon Dion among my friends. Now I ask you, who would begin to talk wizardry in the presence of wise men, or of men, anyhow, laying claim to wisdom? And who would not be equally on his guard, both among friends and among enemies, of betraying his villainy? And moreover, our conversation on that occasion was directed against wizards. For you surely will not suppose that your own father, when he was aspiring to the throne, set more confidence in wizards than in himself, or that he got me to put pressure upon heaven, that he might obtain his object, when, on the contrary, he was confident of winning the crown before ever he came to Egypt, and subsequently he had more important matters to talk over with me, namely, the laws and the just acquisition of wealth, and how the gods ought to be worshipped, and what blessings they have in store for those monarchs who govern their people in accordance with the laws. These are the subjects which he desired to learn about, and they are all the direct opposite of wizardry, for if they count for anything at all, there will be an end of the black art. 3. And there is another point, my prince, which merits your attention. The various arts known to mankind, and in spite of the differences of their functions and achievements, are yet all concerned to make money, some earning less, some earning more, and some just enough to live upon. And not only the base mechanic arts, but the rest, those which are esteemed liberal arts, as well as those which only border upon being liberal, and true philosophy is the only exception. And by liberal arts I mean poetry, music, astronomy, the art of the sophist and of the orator, the merely forensic kinds excepted, and by the arts which border upon liberal I mean those of the painter, modeler, sculptor, navigator, agriculturalist, in case the latter waits upon the seasons, for these arts are not very inferior to the liberal professions. And on the other hand, my prince, there are the pseudo-liberal arts of jugglers, which I would not have you confuse with divination, for this is highly esteemed, if it be genuine, and tell the truth, though whether it is an art I am not yet sure. But I, anyhow, affirm wizards to be professors of a pseudo-liberal art, for they get men to believe that the unreal is real, and to distrust the real as unreal, and I attribute all such effects to the imaginative fancy of the dupes. For the cleverness of this art is relative to the folly of the persons who are deceived by them, 
and who offer the sacrifices they prescribe. And its professors are given up wholly to filthy lucre, for all their parade of skill is devised by them in hope of gain, and they are always on the lookout for big fortunes, and they try to persuade people who are passionately attached to something or another that they are capable of getting everything for them. Do you then find me so opulent as to warrant me in supposing that I cultivate this sort of false and illiberal wisdom, the more so as your own father considered me to be above all pecuniary considerations? And to show you that I speak the truth, here is a letter to me from that noble and divine man, who, in it, praises me more especially for my poverty. It runs thus. The autocrat Vespasian, to Apollonius the philosopher, sends greeting. If all men, Apollonius, were disposed to be philosophers in the same spirit as yourself, then the lot no less of philosophy than of poverty would be an extremely happy one. For your philosophy is pure and disinterested, and your poverty is voluntary. Farewell. Let this be your sire's pleading in my behalf when he thus lays stress upon the disinterestedness of my philosophy, and the voluntariness of my poverty. For I have no doubt he had in mind the episode in Egypt, when Euphrates and several of those who pretended to be philosophers approached him, and in no obscure language begged for money. Whereas I myself not only did not solicit him for money, but repudiated them as impostors for doing so, and I also showed an aversion from money from my first youth, for realizing that my patrimony, and it was a considerable property, was at best a transitory toy, I gave it up to my brothers and to my friends to be the poorer of my relatives, so disciplining myself from the very home and hearth to want nothing. I will not dwell upon Babylon and the parts of India beyond the Caucasus and the river Hyphasis, through which I journeyed ever true to myself. But in favor of my life here, and no less of the fact that I have never coveted money, I will invoke the testimony of this Egyptian here, for he accuses me of every sort of evil deed and design. Yet we hear nothing from him of how much money I made by these villainies, nor of how much gain I had in view. Indeed, he thinks me such a simpleton as to practice my wizardry for nothing, and whereas others only commit its crimes for much money, he thinks that I commit them for none at all. It is as if I cried my wares to the public in such terms as the following. Come, O ye dupes, for I am a wizard, and I practice my art not for money, but free, gratis, and for nothing. And so you shall earn a great reward, for each of you will go off with his heart's desire, while I shall get away with nothing but dangers and writs of accusation. 4. But without descending to such silly arguments, I would like to ask the accuser which of his counts I ought to take first. And yet, why need I ask him? For at the beginning of his speech he dwelt upon my dress, and by Zeus, upon what I eat and what I do not eat. O oh, divine Pythagoras! Do not defend me upon these counts, for we are put upon our trial for a rule of life of which thou wast the discoverer, and of which I am the humble partisan. For the earth, 
my prince, grows everything for mankind, and those who are pleased to live at peace with the brute creation want nothing. For some fruits they can cull from earth, others they win from her furrows. For she is the nurse of men, and suits the seasons. But these men, as it were, deaf to the cries of Mother Earth, wet their knife against her children in order to get themselves dress and food. Here, then, is something which the Brahmans of India themselves condemned, and which they taught the naked sages of Egypt also to condemn. And from them Pythagoras took his rule of life, and he was the first of Hellenists who had intercourse with the Egyptians. And it was his rule to give up and leave her animals to the earth, but all things which she grows, he declared, were pure and undefiled, and ate of them accordingly, because they were best adapted to nourish both body and soul. But the garments which most men wear, made of hides of dead animals, he declared to be impure, and accordingly clad himself in linen, and on the same principles had his shoes woven of biblus. And what were the advantages which he derived from such purity? many, and before all the privilege of recognizing his own soul. For he had existed in the age when Troy was fighting about Helen, and he had been the fairest of the sons of Panthus, and the best equipped of them all. Yet he died at so young an age as to excite the lamentations even of Homer. Well, after that he passed into several bodies, according to the decree of Adrastea, he transfers the soul from body to body, and then he again resumed the form of man, and was born to Menesarchides of Samos, this time a sage instead of a barbarian, and an Ionian instead of a Trojan, and so immune from death that he did not even forget that he was Euphorbus. I have then told you who was the begetter of my own wisdom, and I have shown that it is no discovery of my own, but an inheritance come to me from another. And as for myself, though I do not condemn or judge those who make it part of their luxury to consume the red-plumaged bird, or the fowls from Phasis, or the land of the Pionies, which are fattened up for their banquets by those who can deny nothing to their bellies, and though I have never yet brought an accusation against anyone, because they buy fish for their tables at greater prices than grand signors ever gave for their Corinthian chargers, and though I have never grudged any one his purple garment, nor his soft raiment, and pamphylian tissues, yet I am accused and put upon my trial, O ye gods, because I indulge in asphodel, and dessert of dried fruits, and pure delicacies of that kind. 5. Nor even is my mode of dress protected from their calumnies, for the accuser is ready to steal even that off my back, because it has such vast value for wizards. And yet, apart from my contention about the use of living animals and lifeless things, according as he uses one or the other of which I regard a man as impure or pure, in what way is linen better than wool? Was not the latter taken from the back of the gentlest of animals, of a creature beloved of the gods? who do not disdain themselves to be shepherds, and, by Zeus, once held the fleece to be worthy of a golden form, if it was really a god that did so, and if it be not a mere story? On the other hand, 
linen is grown and sewn anywhere, and there is no talk of gold in connection with it. Nevertheless, because it is not plucked from the back of a living animal, the Indians regard it as pure, and so do the Egyptians, and I myself and Pythagoras, on this account, have adopted it as our garb when we are discoursing or praying or offering sacrifice. And it is a pure substance under which to sleep of a night, for those who live as I do, dreams bring the truest of their revelations. 6. Let us next defend ourselves from the attack occasioned by the hair which we formerly wore, for one of the courts of the accusation turns upon the squalor thereof. But surely the Egyptian is not entitled to judge me for this, but rather the dandies, with their yellow and well-combed locks, who seek, by means of them, to inflame the hearts of their lovers and the mistresses of their revels. Let them congratulate and compliment themselves upon their locks and on the myrrh which drips from them. But think me everything that is unattractive, and if a lover of anything, of abstention from love. For I am inclined to address them thus. O oh, ye poor wretches, do not falsely accuse an institution of the Dorians. For the wearing of your hair long has come down from the Lacedaemonians, who affected it in the period when they reached the height of their military fame. And a king of Sparta, Leonidas, wore his hair long in token of his bravery, and in order to appear dignified to his friends, yet terrible to his enemies. For these reasons, Sparta wears her hair long no less in his honor than in that of Lycurgus and of Iphitus. And let every sage be careful that the iron knife does not touch his hair, for it is impious to apply it thereto, inasmuch as in his head are all the springs of his senses and all his institutions, and it is the source from which his prayers issue forth, and also his speech, the interpreter of his wisdom. And whereas Empedocles fastened a fillet of deep purple around his hair, and walked proudly about the streets of the Hellenists, composing hymns to prove that he had passed from humanity and was become a god, I only wear my hair dishevelled, and I have never needed to sing such hymns about it. Yet am hailed before the law courts as a criminal. And what shall I say of Empedocles? Which had he most reason to praise, the man himself or his contemporaries, for their happiness, seeing that they never leveled false accusation against him for such a reason? 7. But let us say no more about my hair, for it has been cut off and the accusation has been forestalled by the same hatred which inspires the next count, a much more serious one from which I must now defend myself. For it is one calculated to fill not only you, my prince, but Zeus himself with apprehension. For he declares that men regard me as a god, and that those who have been thunderstruck and rendered stark mad by myself proclaim this tenet in public. And yet, before accusing me, there are things which they should have informed us of, to wit, by what discourses, or by what miracles of word or deed, I induced men to pray to me. For I never talked among Helens of the goal and origin of my soul's past and future transformations, although I knew full well what they were. Nor did I ever disseminate such opinions about myself, 
nor go about in search of presages and oracular strains, as is the instinct of candidates for divine honors. Nor do I know of a single city in which a decree was passed that the citizens should assemble and sacrifice in honor of Apollonius. And yet I have been much esteemed in the several cities which asked for my aid, whatever the objects were for which they asked it, and they were such as these, that their sick might be healed of their diseases, that both their initiations and their sacrifices might be rendered more holy, that insolence and pride might be extirpated and the laws strengthened. And whereas the only reward which I obtained in all this was that men were made much better than they were before, they were all so many boons bestowed upon yourself by me. For, as cowherds, if they get the cows into good order, earn the gratitude of their owners, and as shepherds fatten the sheep for the owner's profit, and as beekeepers remove diseases from the hive, so that the owner may not lose his swarm, so also I myself, I think, by correcting the defects of their politics, improved the cities for your benefit. Consequently, if they did regard me as a god, the deception brought profit to yourself, for I am sure they were the more ready to listen to me, because they feared to do that which a god disapproved of. But in fact they entertained no such illusion, though they were aware that there is between man and god a certain kinship which enables him alone of the animal creation to recognize the gods, and to speculate both about his own nature and the manner in which it participates in the divine substance. Accordingly, man declares that his very form resembles God, as it is interpreted by sculptors and painters, and he is persuaded that his virtues come to him from God, and that those who are endowed with such virtues are near to God and divine. But we need not hail the Athenians as the teachers of this opinion, because they were the first to apply to men the titles of just and Olympic beings and the like, though they are too divine, in all probability, to be applicable to man. But we must mention the Apollo and the Pythian temple as their author. For when Lycurgus from Sparta came to his temple, having just penned his code for the regulation of the affairs of Lacedaemon, Apollo addressed him, and weighed and examined the reputation he enjoyed. And at the commencement of his oracle, the god declares that he is puzzled whether to call him a god or a man. But as he advances, he decides in favor of the former appellation, and assigns it to him as being a good man. And yet, the Lacedaemonians never forced a lawsuit on this account upon Lycurgus, nor threatened him on the ground that he claimed to be immortal for he never rebuked the Pythian god for so addressing him, but, on the contrary, the citizens agreed with the oracle, for, I believe, they were already persuaded of the fact before ever it was delivered. And the truth about the Indians and the Egyptians is the following. The Egyptians falsely accuse the Indians of several things, and in particular find fault with their ideas of conduct. But though they do so, they yet approve of the conduct which they have given of the creator of the universe, and even have taught it to others, though originally it belonged to the Indians. Now this account recognizes God as the creator of all things, who brought them into being and sustains them, 
and it declares further that his motive in designing was his goodness. Since then these notions are kindred to one another, I carry the argument further, and declare that good men have in their composition something of God. And by the universe, which depends upon God the Creator, we must understand things in heaven and all things in the sea and on the earth, which are equally open to all men to partake of, though their fortunes are not equal. But there is also a universe dependent on the good man which does not transcend the limits of wisdom, which, I imagine, you yourself, my prince, will allow stands in need of a man fashioned in the image of God. And what is the fashion of this universe? There are undisciplined souls which in their madness clutch at every fashion, and they have laws which are out of date and vain. And there is no good sense among them, but the honors which they pay to the gods really dishonor them, and they are in love with idle chatter and luxury which breed idleness and sloth, the worst of all practical advisers. And there are other souls which are drunken and rush in all directions at once, though their antics lead to nothing, nor could do so, even if they drank all the drugs accounted, as the mandragoras is, to be soporific. Now, if you need a man to administer and care for the universe of such souls, a god sent down by wisdom. For he is able to wean them from the lusts and passions which they rush to satisfy with instincts too fierce for ordinary society, and from their avarice, which is such that they deny they have anything at all unless they can hold their mouths open and have the stream of wealth flow into it. For perhaps such a man as I speak of could even restrain them from committing murder. However, neither I myself nor even the God who created all things, can wash off them the guilt of that. 8. Let me now, my prince, take the accusation which concerns Ephesus, since the salvation of that city was gained, and let the Egyptian be my judge, according as it best suits his accusation. For this is the sort of thing the accusation is. Let us suppose that among the Scythians or Celts, who live among the rivers Ister and Rhine, a city has been founded every whit as important as Ephesus in Ionia. Here you have a sallyport of barbarians, who refuse to be subject to yourself. Let us then suppose that it was about to be destroyed by a pestilence, and that Apollonius found a remedy and averted it. I imagine that a wise man would be able to defend himself even against such a charge as that, unless indeed the sovereign desires to get rid of his adversaries, not by use of arms, but by plague. For I pray, my prince, that no city may ever be wholly wiped out, either to please yourself or to please me, nor may I ever behold in temples a disease to which those who lie sick should succumb in them. But granted that we are not interested in the affairs of barbarians, and need not restore them to health since they are our bitter enemies and not at peace with our race. Yet who would desire to deprive Ephesus of her salvation, a city which took its beginnings from that purest of beings, Attis, and which grew in size beyond all other cities of Ionia and Lydia, and stretched herself out to the sea on the promontory over which she is built, and filled with studious people, both philosophers and rhetoricians, thanks to whom the city owes her strength, 
not to her Calvary, but to the tens of thousands of her inhabitants in whom she encourages wisdom. And do you think that there is any wise man who would decline to do his best in behalf of such a city, when he reflects that Democritus once liberated the people of Abdera from pestilence, and when he bears in mind the story of Sophocles of Athens, who is said to have charmed the winds when they were blowing unseasonably, and who has heard how Empedocles stayed a cloud in its course when it would have burst over the heads of the people of Aragus? End of Volume 2, Book 8, Chapter 7, Part 1